It was 1974 when Richard M. Nixon was the president that he was under inquiry, impeachment inquiries by the Congress, by the House. That didn't come all the way to its end. He resigned in the process of that and left office under a cloud of shame and guilt. There were several other people that were convicted. His henchmen, his operatives that broke into the Watergate office complex, hence evermore it's been known as Watergate. And they also went to jail, or he was pardoned by President Ford, but they also went to jail. One of them was, of course, Chuck Colson. If you don't know his story and how God did a great work in his life through that circumstance, allow me to just refresh you with it. Here this past fall, if I have my dates correct, he was celebrating, he's passed now, but he was celebrating his 30 years of Christian experience being converted. He says here, and I'm reading from his testimony, he said, 30 years ago today, I visited Tom Phillips, who was president of Raytheon, big military contractor, at his home outside of Boston. I represented Raytheon. He was a lawyer. Chuck Colson was a lawyer before going to the White House, and I was about to start again. But I visited for another reason as well. I knew Tom had become a Christian, and he seemed so different. I wanted to ask him what had happened. That night, he read to me from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, particularly a chapter on the great sin of pride. A proud man is always walking through life, looking down on other people, Lewis said. As a result, he cannot see something above himself, immeasurably superior, and that is God. Tom, that night, told me about his encounter with Christ in his own life, and he didn't realize it, but I was in the depths of deep despair over Watergate, watching the president, who I'd helped for years, flounder in office. I'd also heard that I was becoming a target of the investigation as well, and in short, my world was collapsing around me. That night, as Tom was telling me about Jesus, I listened attentively, but didn't let on about my own need. When he offered to pray, I thanked him, but said, no, I'd see him sometime after I read C.S. Lewis's book. But when I got to my car that night, I couldn't drive it out of the driveway. Here I am, an ex-Marine captain, White House tough guy. He was known as the hatchet man for Nixon. White House tough guy, and I was crying too hard I couldn't see. I was calling out to God. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed forgiveness. I needed Jesus, and he came into my life. That was 30 years ago, and I've been reflecting on that for some time. Of course, Chuck Colson went on to start an international prison ministry that has led tens of thousands, would not be an exaggeration, maybe hundreds of thousands of prisoners to Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, the recidivism rate is normally in the 90s. Those who go through Chuck Colson's program, the recidivism rate of returning back to prison is about 8%. He also started the Wilberforce Forum and Breakpoint, which has been a huge blessing in my life. He wrote the book, Born Again, which God has used. So Chuck Colson came to a crisis in his life, and he turned to God. 
I want us to draw upon that as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Grace for every need is what I've entitled my message. And I thought I'd start a series here just kind of under the broad context of great New Testament text. Great New Testament text. And this is the first one that I'm drawing our attention to. And I'll start off with some questions here. Do you ever feel too weak to go through the situation the Lord has allowed into your life? Just too weak to go through them. Do you ever feel insufficient to fulfill the responsibilities that you have? Do you ever feel inadequate to be the good mom or the good dad or the supportive, wise friend? We all face feelings of weakness and inadequacy in life. The good news is our Heavenly Father's strength has no limits. And that's what Paul is discussing here. For most of us, when we are facing a major burden, a big mountain too high to climb, a heavy burden as the Apostle Paul describes as a thorn in the flesh in this passage, our automatic tendency is to pray to God, God, take this away. God, remove this from my life. God, eliminate these circumstances from me. But consider that God may want to use our weakness and our inability as an opportunity to show his strength and to show his grace. So let's look at verses 7 through 10 in particular. First, Paul mentions the painful thorn. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Literally, a messenger of Satan. It was sent from Satan to buffet me through God's hand. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, that it might be removed. So Paul has the same tendency that all the rest of us. God, eliminate this from my life. Take this away from me. So the painful thorn. Two questions here. First of all, what was this trial? Or literally we would say, what was Paul's problem? What was Paul's problem that he's referring to in kind of the oblique term, a thorn in the flesh? Now, the Greek word here for thorn in this verse is scolops. It's different than the word that is used to describe the crown of thorns that was plaited or woven and then placed on Christ's head. Different word altogether. In fact, this is the only time it occurs in the entire New Testament. And the idea behind this word thorn here is that it is a barb or it is a spike. Figuratively, it refers to a disability. That's what Paul is talking about. He was given a disability or an annoyance that he could not get his mind off, at least in the beginning. And we don't certainly know conclusively what the thorn was. There's a lot of conjecture about it. Many would say, which I tend to agree with, that it was probably an eye disease that Paul had. Maybe even related to his conversion when he was struck down on the Damascus Road and saw the bright light that was the glory of God and he was blind for several days and then some scales fell off his eyes, like scabs fell off his eyes, and then he had his sight back, at least a measure of it. So maybe he had a disfiguring eye disease. 
That's why he needed a scribe to write for him. Or sometimes he says, see, I, Paul, signed this letter. See which large letters I use. So maybe it was a disfiguring eye disease that when you looked at Paul, you kind of like, what is wrong here? He wasn't maybe pleasant to look at, which if you're a public person and a public speaker, it kind of complicates your life just a little bit more. Maybe it was a disfiguring eye disease that hindered his ministry and his ability to communicate with the churches. Some suggest that it was seizures, but we don't know. And it's a good thing we don't know. We just know that he calls it a thorn in the flesh, an inability, a disability, a problem that plagued him throughout his life until he went home to glory. Paul's thorn on three occasions, he says in verse 8, on three occasions. We would assume it's over time. And I don't think it was just three prayers, obviously. There are three periods in Paul's life where he gave himself to a period, we would assume, of fasting and prayer and focused, consecrated prayer, probably involving the churches or other people that God would heal him, that God would deliver him. Maybe over a period of years, on three occasions, Paul committed himself to prayer. On three occasions, he asked the Lord to take it away from him, but God chose not to. Perhaps Paul thought, because he's a human just like the rest of us, Paul thought, well, I didn't have this in my life. I could do so much more for the Lord. Actually, I could be so much more effective if God would remove this problem and deliver me from this dilemma that plagues me. Maybe I'm speaking to someone today who is struggling with a thorn, probably several. Struggling with a thorn in the form of a physical handicap or physical sickness that even the doctors can't seem to solve and the medicine doesn't seem to work. It's just a problem or a daunting life failure, something that is in your past that It seems like every time you turn around, you're being reminded of that failure and how it haunts you. For maybe some, it's a family situation, a broken relationship or relationship that there's a great distance now, a cavern, a separation. And while others are enjoying familial relationships, around the holidays or whatever it is, that relationship is broken and you're always reminded of it. A thorn in the flesh is something that brings pain to us every time it comes to mind. So Paul talks about his thorn. Second, why did God allow this? What was it? We don't really know. But why did God allow this? Why does a good God allow what we would say are bad things to come into his children's lives. Why is that? If he's such a good God, why doesn't he give us nothing but good? Why did God allow this? First, I would say, and I think I have scriptural authority to do this, to keep Paul from destructive pride. In the verses that preceded, verses 7 through 10, Paul talks about I know a man, look at verse 2, I know a man in Christ. In other words, he switches to the third person to describe himself, I think out of humility. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you about my experience of going to heaven. I'm going to write a book about it. That's not Paul. Some today have done that. 
But Paul, you know, transitions to the third person. He says, I know a man who is a Christian. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't really know. He said, I I don't know if my body was translated or this was a vision. Uh, I'm not really sure. Out of the body or in the body, I do not know, but God knows, who is caught up into the third heaven. Most of you know in the ancient world, particularly in the Hebrew culture, they had three heavens. They, they talked about the three heavens. The first heaven is where the birds fly, okay, relatively low. The second heaven is where the stars are. And we peer through telescopes and with, even with a naked eye, and we can see the various constellations. The third heaven is beyond that where God dwells, beyond the stars, beyond the immediate sky. That's where God is. That's, that's heaven, the heaven of the heaven. That's the third heaven. So Paul says, I was caught up into the very rooms of God. I was caught up into the very throne room of God where he dwells. I was caught up into paradise, he says, in the next verse, the latter part of verse 4, and heard inexpressible words. I heard things that I can't communicate which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such as one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. I will boast in my infirmities. Most of us don't like to do that. Most of us don't like to talk about our failures, our weaknesses, our bad memories, what make us look stupid. Paul talks about his infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I'm not going to be a fool. I will speak the truth, and, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees in me or hears of me. When you look at me, you say, he's not much. But God was using him. Paul talks about the issue that he believes why God brought this into his life as he looks back now and he writes 2 Corinthians because Paul had an experience that very few, matter of fact, we'd probably say only one other New Testament personage ever had and that was the Apostle John to be caught up in the heaven to see God or at least what we could see of God and to hear things and to be commissioned and to be called to write and to called to, to minister in, in a unique way. Paul says, lest I should have pride. So God allowed this thorn. Many times after a mountaintop experience, there's a valley. God had given Paul great vistas of truth. And he wrote a large portion of our New Testament literature. Paul was an intrepid missionary. Paul was a church planner. He was unique even amongst the apostles. God knows our weakness and he knows our tendency to pride. So in his love, he often humbles us so we can learn dependence upon Paul. Second, to encourage Paul to draw close to Christ. He allowed this to happen so Paul would be dependent upon Christ. Certainly Paul was a doer. You're going to describe Paul in words that we would use him today. We'd say Paul was driven. He was driven for Christ, he was driven for ministry, but Paul was driven. He wanted to get things done, and he got things done under the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I labored more abundantly than them all, but not I, but God working in me. But he got it done. He dotted the hillside of the Mediterranean world with churches. He was a driven man. He accomplished more in his lifetime for Christ than probably any other human individual. 
But as we learn from the story of the sisters, Mary and Martha, that isn't all God wants from us. Matter of fact, that isn't even the first priority that God has for us. Remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is confronted with teaching and Martha comes to him and says, Lord, Lord, and he's got his disciples with him. He's probably got many other followers with him. She said, Lord, my sister's sitting over there listening to you and tell her to help me get ready. We got, we got lunch to fix. There, there's potato salad that needs to be made. You know, that kind of a thing. And he says to her, I think gently and kindly and graciously, he says, Martha, Martha, Mary hath chosen the best thing, the wisest thing, the first priority, and that's to sit and listen and to learn and grow. I'm not going to take that away from her. Jesus wasn't concerned about the after fellowship meal. Jesus wasn't concerned about you know, the sandwiches or, you know, was the grass cut and was everything, you know, vacuumed or whatever way you want to describe it in today's term. He was there and he was saying, Mary is listening and learning. She's being changed. And Martha, you need that too. Yes, God needs doers. And yes, God needs workers. And yes, God needs servants. But our first priority is to sit at his feet. Not to be able to show a long list of all the things that we've done for God. Not our accomplishments. Christ desires our fellowship and communion more than our activities and achievements. He's more concerned about our fellowship and communion with him than our activities and achievements for him. Number two, after this first idea in verses 7 and 8, the painful thorn, I've simply just put it under the heading, these powerful truths. I have three of them in verses 9 and 10. Let's revisit those verses. And he said to me, in my Bible, this next phrase is in red because it's from the lips of our Lord to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now Paul's words, therefore most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities, in my weaknesses, my frailties, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'd rather be weak and have God's power than to be healthy, whole, and without flaw and not have God's power. That's what he's saying. Now most of our prayers are God, heal me, help me, get me the right stuff. And then I'll serve you. Paul says, I would rather be sick, weak, despised, not too good to look at, or whatever the case might be, but have the power of God upon me. Verse 10, therefore I take pleasure, I take delight, I glory in the infirmities, the reproaches, and the needs, and the persecution, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak then I'm strong. What words? Because of what this thorn did in Paul's life, he was overwhelmed in the beginning. Then he was overruled by his prayers. He prayed, God, heal me, deliver me. So he was overwhelmed at first, and then he was overruled in his prayers, and then he was overjoyed that God didn't answer his prayer, but gave himself, gave his grace, gave his presence in Paul's life. So he went from overwhelmed and overruled now to overjoyed. 
He learned that the thing he thought was holding him back was the very thing that was making him better in his Christian experience. The very thing he thought was hurting him and holding him down and restricting his ministry wasn't really restricting him. It was blessing his ministry because it connected him ever so more intimately with Jesus Christ and the grace and power that was available to him. So first thing I see is through weakness we are strengthened. Now this is just the opposite of the world. This is just the opposite of the world. There's no way around it. But through weakness, we are strengthened. Strength out of weakness. What an amazing concept. Only God could come up with that. Strength out of weakness. In the times that we are discouraged, our life is disrupted or discombobulated or we are defeated, we can be the strongest we have ever been because if we turn to Christ in total reliance... What is the most restricting trial, devastating circumstances you've ever experienced? Maybe you were ready to throw in the towel, just say, I quit. This isn't working. I can't do this. I don't get it. But you didn't. And aren't you glad that God showed up in your life? I have heard people say, I think all of these, that cancer was the worst thing that ever happened to me. That loss of my job, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. That divorce, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. They would say, all of those are the worst things that ever happened to me, but then they went on to say, but you know what, Pastor? That was also the best thing that ever happened to me. It was also the best thing. The worst thing, yeah, but it was also the best thing because it drove me to Jesus Christ. I came to the end of myself and my own strength, and I realized how weak and frail and incapable I really am. Near my house up here is Coyote Gulch Park. I walk around it in my walk. I do a regular routine walk if the weather's not so terrible. But I walk around Coyote Park, and whether it's spring or many times summer or even in the fall, you'll see people out in Coyote Park, parents with children flying kites. It's just a cool thing, especially little kids. They just, they love it. They get off on it. It's just amazing to them that they're holding on to the string and kites way up in the air and they can barely see it. Now, what makes the kite go up in the air? We all understand it's the contrary winds. It's the adverse winds that lift that kite up. And what's the second factor? Second factor is a hand on the string. Something restricting the kite. It's something that restricts the kite that makes it fly up into the air and gain altitude. If you let go of the string, that kite's either going to blow away or it's going to fall to the ground. So the restriction is really helping fulfill the purpose, the design of the kite. And so God brings into our life restrictions, problems, inadequacies, or as Paul says, thorns that we feel are holding us back, but they're really helping us lift and get altitude for the glory of God. 
the thing we think is holding us down may be the very thing that's helping us the most. We must first be empty before he can fill us. We must first realize we are broken before he can fix us. We must first admit that we are needy before he can meet our need and supply our need and help us or give to us. We must first be cast down before he can lift us up. That's what grace does. That's what God does. So number one, through weakness we are strengthened. Second, I see through weakness we are perfected. Now I'm not just pulling that out of the air. There's only one Greek word for our English phrase is made perfect. And it's the Greek word finish. You'll recognize it when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. One word, tetelestai. Jesus was saying salvation is finished. It's completed with his death and soon resurrection. It is finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done. We don't come to God and say, God, okay, thanks for all that you did, but let me help some. This is what I'm going to bring to the table. You've heard me say many times, there's nothing that we bring to the table but our sin. God does it all in salvation. All we say is, here I am, a sinner, broken and needy. And God says, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Now I can save you. Through weakness we are perfected. And in this verse, that's exactly what Paul is saying. It was in my my weakness that I was perfected. It is accomplished. It's completed. When we are strengthened through him, our strength is completed. It's perfected. It's finished. It's all we need. We don't need anything else other than Christ's grace, other than Christ's presence, other than his supply to meet our need. Not need to add anything to the strength he gives. It's enough to meet whatever need you have or I have. You get that? Because I don't know what you're facing in your life. I know humanity to some degree. And I know our problems are somewhat similar. We all struggle with broken relationships. We all, at a certain age, start to struggle with a health problem. We all have loss of a loved one. We all have some things in common. And all that we need is available to us through Christ. Through weakness, we are perfected. Through weakness, we are strengthened. Third, through weakness, we learn dependence. That's sometimes a tough lesson to learn. A primary qualification for serving God is an honest acknowledgement of our own inability. And man, is that ever true in ministry? It's probably true in every vocation, but it sure is true in ministry. There's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can say that would bring some unsafe person that might be here today or listening to my voice via electronic means that I can do to bring them to Christ. If I could bring people to Christ by twisting their arm and making them march across the line of decision, I would be better spending my time in the gym getting some muscles even bigger than the ones I got. (laughs) Not a lot. But you don't get people across the line of decision with muscles. 
or oratory or eloquence or, or any other human means. It is the Spirit of God that convicts and draws and convinces a person that they're undone. When we acknowledge our inability and our inadequacy, God says, all right, now I can work. Now I can really do something here. God cannot nor will not use you until you admit your own profound inadequacy in life, in the Christian life. Until you say, God, you're going to have to do this because I can't change or I can't change others. I can't fix situations, but I can pray and I can depend upon you to work. If the great apostle Paul, who was unable to bear his thorn apart from the power of Christ, had to admit that and write it, shouldn't we be willing to admit the same thing about our thorn? Here is one of the greatest Christians, maybe the greatest Christian that ever lived, and he says, I'm inadequate. I'm struggling. I need God every moment. If he had to say that, you would think we would readily step up to the line and say, me too, me too. God is not interested in the puffed up person who sees himself as God's gift to humanity. God cannot use that person. And all of us can think of people like that. They're just kind of puffed up with pride Maybe it's pride of face, maybe it's pride of form, maybe it's pride of experience, maybe it's their pedigree. God doesn't use those people. We all know it. They may be Christian and they may be even faithful to church, but God isn't using them in their personal life or in their public life. Impressive credentials don't impress God. It is not what you bring to the table that matters to God. It is not your, you've heard me say it before, it is not your abilities, it is not your opportunities, but it is your humility before God that qualifies you for usefulness. Not our ability, all of us that lack ability sometimes look at people that have ability and say, God, if I just had his gifts or her abilities, maybe I could have done something. Or we think of others that grew up in a different home environment or different background than ours. And we see, well, they had that opportunity and they had those opportunities. No wonder if I had their opportunity. But it isn't our abilities nor our opportunities, but it's our humility before God that makes the difference in who he uses. I've said in my own notes here, because I've realized it in ministry and in life, God doesn't call the gifted. God gifts the called. He doesn't look around on earth and say, now there's a guy that's got real potential. There's a woman that's got all kinds of skills. I'm going to call them into the Christian life. I'm going to call them into some sort of ministry that's unique and special for them. He doesn't do that. God doesn't call the gifted. He gifts the called says, okay, you're following me. I'm going to give you some abilities here, and I'm going to help you here, and you're going to be dependent upon me, but I'll use you. Consider 
This is what I did yesterday. Consider the weak and broken people that God used in the Bible. Just think about them with me for a moment. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses was a stutterer, and he had a public ministry. Samson was a philanderer. Jonah was a deserter. Peter was a denier. Philip or Thomas was a doubter. Bad pedigree, bad curriculum vitae. But all of them were changed. All of them were used by God because they came to the end of themselves. They collapsed and fell in failure. They all came to the end of themselves. They all came to what we would call a crisis of faith. They all had realized they were failures and then they turned to God for grace and help and then God used them. There's nothing wrong with praying to God for help about our thorn, about our trials. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't misunderstand me. God wants us to come to him. But maybe, or hopefully we can realize that his plan may not be to remove that thorn, may not be wanting to remove that trial, that circumstance, that situation, but to use it in your life to draw you to greater dependence upon him so he gets the glory. And that relationship is never closer because of that thorn, because of that trial, because of that inability. Think about that. Because we're quick to pray, God, remove it. God, get it out of here. Fix it. Maybe God says, well, I'm going to fix you through this trial, through this thorn. Let's pray together. Father, you know our nature. We don't like pain. We're not drawn to difficulty. We don't revel in separation and broken relationships. We don't like to admit our inadequacies and failures and inability. But we do know from this passage and probably from others that you like to capitalize on these kinds of circumstances. And you like to, when we're broken and when we're in a heap and when we're without really human resources, then you can infuse us with your grace, with your personage and your help. So help us. Help us to not always pray for deliverance, but to pray for your power. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Savior, may they be like Chuck Colson, who wept in the driveway of his good friend who had also just become a Christian and has sustained Chuck Colson as he was in prison, this new life in Christ. Help anyone that doesn't know you as Savior to run to you today and find forgiveness and find cleansing. For the rest of us who do know you, we want to run to you as well, especially in our times of great loss, inability, hurt, and failure. And may you continue, as you always do, to provide us with yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.